Why, hello and welcome. Welcome to the Peer Pressure Podcast. I am Diane, sometimes known as Diane Kamikaze, and I am your host. The reason why I do this podcast is because I like to say I am a champion of heavy music. I've always found my favorite songs since I was a young kid had riffs, hooks, were either metal, hardcore, hard rock, or punk, or something fairly aggressive in attitude and sound. And I am all about appreciating the people that keep that world going, whether they're musicians, webmasters, other podcasters, record label and festival owners. It's important to me to recognize what these people do in that realm of music. So... I am here to bring them to you in a different context, more than a Wikipedia entry or a press release, a little more personal and a lot more fun. I'm a rocker for life, and I hope these episodes do make a difference. Send me feedback at diane at wfmu.org. And my Facebook page is Diane Kamikaze Farris, rocker for life. Like my page there, and I will keep everybody updated on podcast episodes in that space. Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned. My guest today is Martin Bisi, the acclaimed producer and owner of BC Studios. This interview is from January 2018. We talk quite a bit about the BC 35 release. The record is out, and in our conversation, Martin talks about, well, you never know how things are going to go, and I think there will probably be a lot of, a few shows to support this record. Well, he's still out on tour with this record. I believe he's in Europe right now. And we'll hear what he talks to his dental hygienist about, and how he is able to articulate chaos in the studio.
Uh, we started off Shadow of a Doubt from Sonic Youth's Evol record, which was produced by my guest who is here. Martin, will you say hello? Hello, Diane. And hello, the cosmos of WFMU. Here we are. Here we are. And uh, off mic, you had said you had a little uh, something about the the break in that in the shadow of a doubt in that track. Would you like to tell the listener? Yeah, sure. Not to get too shop talk right off right at right at jump. <laughs> but uh, it was funny that there's the there's a the bridge where there's this like sort of suppo- seemingly kind of hellish. Um, uh, world of voices coming from different sides. No, no, no. And this and that from different sides. Um, that bridge took a day of arranging those vocals. That was a day in the studio. And this was sort of, that record was still sort of in what I would think of as my inf- infancy as a recording engineer, mm-hmm. producer. That must have been like, what, 83, 84, 85, something like that. So yeah, that's, totally. a, that's, that's a long time ago. So I was in the beginning. I'd never experienced spending the whole day on like the vocals in a bridge. Actually, me and Sonic Youth, we kind of left actually the studio sort of dazed, like what just happened? Um, I told a few other people, I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe I spent the whole day. But people had heard it kind of said, well, worth it. I would spend a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's funny because it, what it did is inf- it informed me years later when I started really looking back. I was like, you know what? Maybe I have a knack for like the sort of all hell breaks loose bridge. Like maybe that's a thing. Because then I started looking back at the, all these bridges. Like a bridge is sort of where people say, well, you know, it opens up. We can do – it's a, the spot where you can do some stuff in the studio. Maybe some extra overdubs come in. A little, little bit of the kitchen sink, sink maybe. And I realized over the years that maybe that was a spot where I had done some of my best work is in the bridge of certain notable songs. So that was the – that song, Shadow of a Doubt, was the first time I – kind of realize that with Sonic Youth. Oh, that's interesting, though, to put together that it's very layered. Yeah. And it and it takes a certain ear to be able to hear everything. And t- well, yeah, I mean, the other little thing. Also, these things I've kind of realized and put words to them over the years. I kind of realized years and years later that maybe I, I might be okay or good at sort of trying to articulate chaos and mm. tr- convey chaos, but that you can still pick things out selectively so like what's gonna what's gonna be what's gonna push the limit maybe go right up to the limit without stepping on each other's toes in terms of sounds or like in that case of that song um voices and stuff so it's very articulated but really it's there's a bit of a mess there miasma if you will do people know that they've showed up with a mess and and that you're the person to sort of put a focus into the mess it's funny because I, I think um, – and, and I'm Im- impressed and grateful that, you know, in the last few years, there's been more people explicitly saying things because there's just so many records at this point after, you know, 37 years yeah. in the studio, in the same place, by the way, yes. uh, in Gowanus, Brooklyn, um, that people can actually – articulate or say something oh you know you're good at this i think it was electric caves this man electric caves Mm -hmm. tom lasala i think he said you're good at i don't think he said the word too much but that's kind of how i interpret it so basically he said you're good at when there's too much and then um actually just a couple of weeks ago this band i'm recording well actually just finished recording for thrill jockey might as well mention it wreckmeister harmonies oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. really pretty awesome yes and jr from wreckmeister said you make things sound he used the word sewer Hmm. 
you know, you may it's what you're, the stuff you do, uh, and I don't think he's heard everything. I don't think Rocket necessarily sounds like a <laughs> Kirby Hancock's Rocket sounds like <laughs> right. a sewer, but right. maybe right. we can pick out some sewerness right. out of it. Well, there's some metal it, in there, like metal sound, like like metal well, hitting sounds. There's there. some very very interesting sounds on, on that, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, yeah, so he used the word sewer, which is sort of like this chaotic thing of like what microbial life. That's what have a sewer would have all kinds of diseases and different like ex- right living ex- side by side, less by of, side just, interacting yeah. extrata or whatever of like humans. So I, I was actually quite tickled. I was like, well, not literally tickled, <laughs> but I was sort of like, I like that's like sewer. I would never have said that. So so he kind of got it. Yeah. A little bit, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm not p- putting that foremost on my like studio website page. Sounds like a sewer. <laughs> Come to Gowanus, but you know, food for thought. Also, I, have I been influenced by the fact that I'm next to like a, this toxic Gowanus canal that's very toxic and has gonorrhea in it? It's been discovered. There's been traces of gonorrhea oh, floating around in the water, <laughs> and, and I've, I'm surrounded by brown fields. You know, mm-hmm. so does that influence something? In my psyche, subconsciously, I think about it or I'm aware of it. Or is it part of my identity now? Well, mutant. And you can go as far back as, especially the way the neighborhood was when you moved in, because it was practically take your life in your hands just showing up. There could have been this darkness. I mean, you want to sort of fast forward, it's like, or, or go backwards first and then take your journey forward. Does the fog lift? It's like it seems like that that it was really kind of like a a, a a rough area to be in to start off in, and and then if you take that into a lot of the music that you started off with, it's all like very heavy, very experimental. Like it seems as if the whole thing is like I don't know what I'm doing here, and maybe not quite life or death, but but very um, renegade, very yeah. yeah. Well. It, revolution in a sort of sense of the music Mm -hmm. sort of expression has always been very important to me you know so Mm -hmm. um, even the the studio before it became BC studio we called it um, well it was called OAO studio you'll find that on some of the like early records of like 1981 2 something Mm -hmm. like that and uh, well that was officially from a William Burroughs book Um, so it was from um, I think Naked Lunch so that that meant Operation All Out but oh. the sort of thing, depending on who we were speaking to, would also be over and over. So that sort of revolution, so I kind of, I was always sort of been in touch with that. Not necessarily in a, I mean, yes, maybe sometimes in a against the man sort of thing, but yes. but also in a sort of kind of existential way of revolution, like circular over and over. Um, so um, being, as you said, renegade in Gowanus outside of, I mean, it's very anarchist in a way. It was like the 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 state was weak then around us. Mm-hmm. Um, the the corporate world that was weak around us. You know, we had. I mean, in my oh, building yeah. had like, you know, free electricity or whatever. There wasn't even a hookup. You know, because that even Con Edison wouldn't come around. It was just there. So it was sort of like. I mean, we had subway service. That's as much as I would say. We there was a kind of a police no go zone. But it's. I'm glad you said life and death is because um, I always felt like urgency was was critical like I, it, and that was kind of a hardcore ethic which was like do it like you mean it yes you know put everything into it the, the time time is ticking time's up even you know mm. yeah and so here you are so um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the film and you had just mentioned right that that um, BC studio has been in the same spot now 
for a very, very long time. 30, is it 38 years now? Uh, we might be pushing 38 now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's remarkable. And congratulations on oh. that. And so uh, a couple of years ago, and I don't know when the filming was and how long it took, it was called Sound and Chaos. Yes. I think a, a film about the studio. And it also had a lot to do with how Gowanus is changing and all that. Was um, Was BC in danger of of disappearing at some point is that why the the film started um yeah the the danger has been on and off mm-hmm. so sometimes like really thinking it could be a year off a year away that mm. the studio would you know meet its demise and then something changes like even even the election of donald trump affected things like suddenly things seemed a bit different that actually seemed to kind of put it seemed to put the brakes a little bit on the, the 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 train of the of development very briefly now we're back on so now yeah. now we're in danger again but for a minute i think that that was such a surprise that it really changed yes. things with wall street and like investors and all this stuff and the politics cuz with the development a lot of that's politics it's not laissez faire capitalism it's actually the, the city of new york you know, trying to enable a lot of this development. Mm. So suddenly when it's like, oh, there's a Republican president and actually um, Kushner actually owns, is a part owner in the property across the street from the recording studio. And that was planned to be a 30-story residential tower. So even some of his woes at the moment with with the Trump administration, with Mm. Jared Kushner, that's even maybe messed up those plans. It's been a little bit of that story with Gowanus and that way over the decades, and I've been kind of lucky, still scraping by with some luck, that it's a hard area to develop. There's problems. It's next to this canal. The canal's a Superfund site that Mm. the EPA is cleaning up. Then, oh, that's another thing. They were worried suddenly the EPA would not oversee the cleanup of the canal now. So everything's constantly in flux. So yes, the danger's up, then it goes away, then it recedes, then the heat's on again. And and yeah, I I expect hoping the heat will recede a little bit. But yeah, I'm in a bit of crosshairs. It's very valuable land and a very valuable area. Yeah. But um, actually, I, I kind of skipped over one thing that you were mentioning, which was, you know, the environment affecting the records and stuff. I think it's once you've been through such a cycle of crisis, in this country and mm. in the city, then you start seeing patterns. Like I always felt like I somehow did my best work during times of crisis. So for instance, I think when I first moved there with like urban blight and the urban war zone, that was sort of a, a crisis. And now we're in another crisis. There's been a few and it seems like somehow my ethic of what to put into music or what I feel I'm better at is somehow mm. better expressed or, or is wanted or appreciated more during certain times. It's, it's not all equal. We all get sick of doing things one way or the other. So sometimes you're like, oh, well, now this time, this period, late 90s, this is more about having fun because we're in an economic bubble. And so we're in a bubble. I was in a bubble, you know. So then it was like, oh, maybe I'll do music that's a little more fun. Maybe I'll make jokes. I don't know. It'll be funny. <laughs> maybe it'll be funny. Like, why not, you know? Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's like, oh, no. Like, actually, that did happen to me. I think with the financial crisis, like my last record, Ex Nihilo, I was like, you know what? At least for a while, for at least temporarily, no more glam, no more funny. And this is the time to just really push the limit, you know, very very existential or whatever. So these things respond to the the environment, basically, is my point. Did you find that the music you recorded was reflected in those cycles also? Like, not just yourself and how you felt, but perhaps 
I mean, you know, this is kind of loose, but like, look at all these pop bands coming in during when things are good. Or, or was there a feeling like, man, everybody is just like death and horror and like just just scraping it out during more rough times? Did you, can you say that there would be a trend during times for everybody, for like the music community? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's an uptick of certain types of things, and you mm. and you and I like feeling that's a bit of a zeitgeist. I mean, I like. I like things to be on a certain kinds of levels. Like I like, I like to sort of be a part of certain types of trends at the right time. Like once people get sick of them, you don't want to be oh, doing yeah. grunge. I don't know, you know. <laughs> but there's a moment when something, it, dare I say, fresh, right? When something is sort of vital at that moment before it gets spoiled, where maybe you want to connect to that. But yeah, there is an uptick. Like, oh, there's a bunch of bands like this or a bunch of stuff like this. But then there's always outliers. And sometimes I'm aware that it's a bit of a shame because I realize, oh, wow, there's this, like, great record that gets overlooked because it's just not the cup of tea of the day. Right. Um, so there is, let's say you have, like, six bands and there'll be, like, one band that's the outlier, four bands that seem to really be in some, like, trend of the moment. Like, once things were very gothy, maybe, in, like, the mid-2000s or something. And mm -hmm. then and then there was a moment of, like, a no-wave resurgence where you couldn't be angular enough, you, you <laughs> yes. know? And so there was that. And then somehow now you're doing something angular. I'm all fine for it. But maybe it's like, oh, well, people are maybe a little sick of that. And it's kind of a shame. So I definitely am aware of the cup of tea du jour. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, I do play with that. I mean, I wear, I try to wear many bonnets, and one bonnet might be, and I, I try to be honest about it. I try to be a little bit like the publicist, you know, because I'm not, it's still putty in our hands when we're in the studio. And sometimes we even talk about this stuff, like, what's the big picture? Where does it lean? And try to, try to, like, express how it, it's relevant at the moment, you know, and, and we're stuck with those things because some, some things are a bit cliche and you just kind of just don't want to do them, you know. So funny thing is I, I, I at one point had a, I had a band in um, – so it was actually the band was Saran Song and uh, they did a record with me like in the late 90s and they came in like eight years later. And in the late 90s we did a, a lot of vocal effects like all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. it's, that was – just what we did and then they came in and then we did it and I was like not really into doing a lot of vocal effects and they were like oh what well, we thought since we did that you know eight years ago we would do that again and I was like well we could I just felt like I don't know I've been doing that for like seven years with tons of vocal effects you know what? I think maybe people me whatever maybe people are a little sick of hearing that maybe people want to just hear a voice straight up actually hear someone sing without a lot of that screwing around so it's um, and they went for it Actually, they kind of went. So they were like making jokes a little. They will confuse at first. So yes, since, since you, you don't want to be too 90s and I kind of, you know, so they were joking about it. And I think we split the difference here and there. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so we discuss those things. Always, I'm, I'm people's friend. So we talk. I'm honest. Mm -hmm. Find a, I, I do like finding compromises sometimes. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Well, people trust you. If they come in, they seem... I mean, I, I don't even advertise the studio. So I, I, on purpose, try to make sure it's people that all, like it's meeting me already halfway. They already know a little bit about me or they've heard anything. They've heard either something they've liked on the ether or it's like a friend's rec record that they kind of heard and then somehow feel that they could connect with whatever that whatever they heard. Mm. So it's already there. So they also come in ready to, willing to talk. So we do talk. I think, like, for instance, the first day of mixing at the recording studio is always long. I warn, I warn people. And the reason the first day of mixing, the first song to mix takes longer is, is largely because we talk more. 
We have to talk. These things finally come through. Is this sort of like a, you know, garage trash band? Or is it sort of like a dirty blues band? Or is it like kind of a prog metal band? And, so, and those make different little choices. And sometimes it's not clear where some, what niche, what hole someone falls into. But you, you make a, a weird choice and then you fall in that other thing. Like someone right. one, once in the studio said to me, stopped me and said, they said I had too much high end on the bass drum. The bass drum was too clicky. And they said, oh, if you do that, people will think we're a, whatever it was, like hard rock or blah, blah, blah. And we're like a, like a sludge, sludgy blues band. And they were absolutely right. I thanked them. I was like, wow, that's a great perspective. You know, mm-hmm. like that, a little nuance on the bass drum, like completely skew what it's saying. Big picture first is what people usually hear. And then, then the little picture. So right. if, the, if, if the big picture is a turnoff, not what they feel like hearing, they just turn it off. They go, oh, okay, that's what that is, bam, boom, first impression. So you play with those things. How did you, like early on when you first started the studio, how did, how did you navigate like the everyday, like paying the bills and stuff? Were you set as a studio fully in this space? Um, no, what really the story was is I had uh, a little bit of inheritance. It was actually my, my, my dad died when I was 17 oh. and my mom died when I was 12. So I was actually weirdly enough for like six months when I was 17. I was a bit of an orphan. So I finished high school. I had a little bit of an inheritance. Um, not much. Not not enough, actually, was the story. So really, at one point, after we got the the space in Gowanus, and when I say we, it was sort of the material collective. And we were just thinking of a place to live and to just set up gear and rehearse. And then at some point, I was like, oh, you know, well, maybe I should get some things to record here. And, you know, so I got some recording stuff and actually got a lot of gripe from the other members because it wasn't really enough to do much. I didn't make the greatest choices. I got like a 16-track, 2-inch machine. There was not any way to really use it. And they right. were like, oh, you should have just gotten an 8-track. You overshot. And that's oh. actually the reason Bill Laswell um, took it upon himself to get Brian Eno to invest in the studio because he was like, oh, we're almost there, but we can't do this. Stu- there isn't enough to actually do a studio. So I took a little inspiration. He saw like a, a path forward that would be pretty exciting, and then he made it. He pulled through then with Eno, and that's what made it happen. So, that, yeah, there was a little bit of inheritance that made the initial thing happen. Then also it's important to remember how affor- how much more affordable um, New York been. City was. So our rent was, like, super cheap. It was like, I guess it was 500 a month for the whole studio, right? It's, like, seven times that now, yeah, something like that. And, um, you know, there was five of us in the collective, right? So that's, like, you know, two days of work somewhere right. a, a, a month, and that's your nut of the, the rent. I would just – hold ladders at like in like art galleries that sort of thing right and they throw me a 50 so i just do that a couple of times and that was my shot of the rent so we got by a lot initially in the studio i did it i did it for like i did a lot of sessions for like what we would call a per diem it was basically just kind of feed me you know so it was super cheap i also got a lot of help from my ex-wife vicky uh, she pulled some rabbits out of hats and made things click and we could actually keep the lights on and keep going so i'm not privy exactly to all the things that happened but she was the studio manager, basically, so things managed to pull through. And there was a lot to record. I mean, there wasn't a lot of – I mean, I could have been busy like 24 hours. There was so much stuff out there. There was so much stuff out there, but there was also not a lot of affordable recording studios, like like n- none in Brooklyn. I think it was a place called Coyote oh, in, yeah. in, the, in the Williamsburg, mm-hmm. the old Williamsburg. Yes. Not the new Williamsburg. Um, that was the that was the only other place I think in Brooklyn. That yeah. was it. So I was yeah. one of two. And then how many more would there even be? So and that's actually why I did a lot of hip hop, 
because they were up in the Bronx. There was not nothing up there of that nature with like two-inch tape and blah, blah, blah. So I, I would meet them in the East Village or something because it was a lot of uptown meets downtown, downtown meets uptown. And, but that's why I did people from the Bronx. That might not even happen now because they got they got home studios, I'm sure, in the Bronx yeah. now, the especially for hip-hop. Yeah, but that yes. at the time, that there was no other thing. There was That's the way to do it. So that's why I got into hip-hop because they needed a place to record and I connected with them. Back to the film. Yeah. They focused on the fact that the studio could be in jeopardy. Yeah. Right. Did they come to you? Well, the the, the two um, directors, Sarah Levitt and um, Ryan Douglas, they had a day job together. They were like video editors at some place, right? Somewhat, somewhat corporate place. And they had been talking just as they were friends. It would be nice to do like a, a, a film short like uh, they were actually the, the the documentary was initially just going to be two hours. I'm sorry, twenty minutes. Sorry, I was say, wow, <laughs> dyslexic there or something. <laughs> twenty minutes, right? And so there was going to be, and they were like they had different interests. Uh, Ryan was in a had been in a metal band in in Texas, and Sarah was maybe interested in something a little more sociological, but didn't want to do a, a straight gentrification in Brooklyn short documentary right. so there was like an angle that they were kind of missing and then a mutual friend suggested we well, should check out this person Martin and then they talked to me and then they realized that, that was a good intersection of all those topics hmm. um, and interesting I think probably because of Sarah I suppose the, for instance I like and I like that the that my name is not in the title of the film it's you know uh, sound and chaos a story of bc studio not the story of martin bc although right. they kind of somehow slip in there but you can't tell the story of bc studio without martin yeah of course but weirdly enough it was about the space and it was fascinating to me to see how much more how people resonated to that with that more um you know for years you know i'm a working musician recording engineer i'd sent out my bio all the time. It was not like I was trying to keep it a secret and people, oh, that's nice. But suddenly the fact that's, oh, no, it's not just that I recorded Africa Bambada and Sonic Youth. It's like they were in the same space. Yeah. And it was like in this weird place. So there was a whole narrative of the time that that was sort of that I didn't even appreciate as much until after I saw the documentary. But that was sort of the focus, really. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Like when somebody comes in from the outside and does a project about you was the way that they framed it surprising and did it have you look at your own work like had you looked at your own body of work in a way prior to that i definitely had not looked at it quite that way mm -hmm. um the, the the sad a sad thing i'm actually kind of embarrassed like I, the, a sad thing was that i think maybe 2000 Seven, two thousand six, something like that. When it was really things were looking uncertain with the music industry and recording industry, I was asking myself the hard question, and I was, I was asking me, the, I was asking myself whether it was really worth it to keep the recording studio. So I was asking myself, I was yeah. not sure. Like I'm killing myself to keep this place going. Is that the right choice? I wasn't really ready to jump, but I was sort of not sure um, for a lot of. This was also before, by the way, the sort of resurgence of vinyl. You know, I was like, oh, oh e everything is just playlists on SoundCloud or, or, right. or, you know, I mean, do people even care about albums? Because I got into recording to blow people's minds. That, those, that's the kind of language I would use. This is going to be like mind-blowing, revolutionary. I think that artists, ban I mean, the, basically my feeling then in like 2006 was that, sure, bands, artists could be, as artists, revolutionary or mind-blowing, but the actual recording 
recordings themselves, the actual sounds on the recordings, wouldn't necessarily be mind-blowing or revolutionary in the way that they that I felt they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, so when I would do sounds, I was like, when people hear this sound, when they hear this drum sound, when they hear this, it's going to freak them out. They're going to go go crazy. You know, so that's the level that I was looking for. You know, so I was like, well, if if I was young now coming into it, would I be as inspired to even get into recording. So this was the question I was asking myself in 2006, also keeping physically the studio going. So I was actually ready to walk away, wow. which is would have been terrible. And now I'm so glad I didn't. And I, I actually appreciate the space a lot more since the documentary focused on on the space. Mm-hmm. And also that things keep slipping. You know, gentrification marches forward. The space is actually looking more and more special. People, when they walk into the space, their eyes glow up, blow up, because there isn't a lot of that around anymore. In the old days, back then there was. There was a lot of like raw industrial space that you would walk into daily in and out of for right. various purposes. Now it's rare. Mm-hmm. So that studio, the studio still has that. So I feel much more like it, it has more value. Just that simple in context. My very special guest is Martin B.C. of B.C. Studios in Gowanus. And you've got a, uh, a set of music for us to listen to. So I'd like to get into some of that. Cool. Tell, tell me about the first track you want to play for the listeners. Okay. Well, this, was, this is actually going to be on what's called B.C., like the two letters B.C., like before Christ. Mm-hmm. B.C., it's going to, the, the album's called B.C. 35. It's coming out in, on Bronson Recordings. And it's... Um, basically the 35-year anniversary record. Um, Basically what happened is I realized um, in January 2016 that it was the 35-year anniversary of my first recordings at the studio with with Brian Eno. So what we did is we took a a weekend and just invited like between 30 and 50 people all doing different types of things. Me and the sort of associate producer of the record, um, Genevieve, Fernworthy. We sort of arranged all the people into like groupings, and oh, and some people decided amongst themselves to like write a song for it. And some people did a re- like Live Skull, which is an old New York band. Mm-hmm. They actually decided to do a reunion with some of the original members. Oh, wow. Alice Donut as well. The two members from the original band decided to come together. So there's a lot of variety and a lot of songs. But anyway, so this first one is an the first one we'll hear is an ensemble of Brian Viglione from Dresden Dolls, Dan Kaufman of Barbez, Jason Lafarge of Pants Exploder, who's also the um, the partner in the studio, Paul Walfish, who just came off of tour with the Swans, and Neil Exall. And it's called The Animals Speak Truth. We're going to take a listen to this, and we'll be back with Martin in a few.
And we've returned. Martin, are you there? I, I, I am here, I think. <laughs> I'm somewhere. Likely here. He is right here. Oh, my God. If you God. say so. <laughs> so tell the listeners what we just heard. And uh, my special guest is Martin B.C., and he is uh, taking the reins of the DJ, and we're going to talk to him a little bit. And... Well, I already described the first song. That was uh, The Animals Speak Truth. The second one was Disintegration in the Well, and that was uh, Ev Gold and Paul Claro from Cinema Cinema. Um, they're actually sort of a – I think they don't like the word avant-garde, but they're sort of like a trashy avant-garde post-hardcore slash slash something like that band. And uh, they, uh, that was a, an improv done at the uh, 35-year anniversary recording weekend. So it'll be on the BC35 record, that one. And it's with, uh, okay, with Cinema Cinema and then David Lackner playing horns from Blue Jazz TV. And Mike Dos Santos, who was in this band called The Realistics, maybe like seven or eight years ago. It's funny because the, in the title, Disintegration in the Well, the well is a reference to the sort of water table um, water, the, the ancient pond that actually underlies the recording studio from um, waters that sort of seep in eventually into the Gowanus Canal. That was all a, a wetland, basically, before mm. the canal was created. Um, you know, it was, a, it was originally Gowanus Creek and then a big pond there. And so the well in the song title is, so it's kind of a cool title because I, I guess they're sort of becoming one with the environment and seeping down into the waters and disappearing Sounds kind of gross. Well, sorry. Well, it, especially there, like you know. Well, we're it's we're mute. We're mutants. I think. I think. I think that's the kind of vibe. You know. Mm-hmm. Yes. B- believe yes. me. I, I. I'm appalled when I see people canoeing on the canal, especially <laughs> with children. I'm like, come on. <laughs> I mean, I, me, whatever. But children, you really want them to glow in the dark in a few years? Gonorrhea canoe. <laughs> yeah, it's actually pretty shocking, really. Yeah. I mean, you, you can't have that even touch your skin. That yeah. water. Yeah. How old is the building that the studio is in? Well, there's a little bit of debate. I, I think it's the um, the older scenario that it was uh, 1843. Hmm. The building manager thinks it's not that old um, and that it was a, an armament factory during the Civil War. Wow. Um, he thinks that it actually wasn't built until the 1880s. So where uh, maybe he knows, but I've, I heard from the original owner when I moved in that it, it, it had previously been an armament factory, so it's oh, it's as old as it gets around there. Actually, I found the the reason that year is easy, that year is easy to remember, eighteen forty three, is because all the oldest buildings around there. That's exactly the year. That must have been like the year where they started building stuff. Do you know the square footage of the studio? Oh, it's up there. It's got to be, um, I guess, a little bit over three thousand square feet. Nice. When you look at all the parts and the rooms and the control, the control room is in, like in the middle floor. Actually, you know what? If we were to say the just the recording studio proper, because I also have my personal space and everything, then it's actually maybe more like 2,500 square feet. Okay. And the, the control room is in the middle. The private area is more upstairs. It used to not be private. Actually, the Ginger Baker record that you played, mm-hmm. that those drums were recorded in what now is my bedroom. And it's nice. like, in te- I, I'm lucky to live in a room with like intensely tall ceilings. It's nice mm-hmm. for living. But that used to be the, the drum room. And Bill Laswell used to be a big fan of that room for drums specifically. I found it like incredibly difficult to work with. I mean, it sounds amazing, but it's so, so loud in there. The drums are so loud that people are having a hard time with headphones. It just wasn't 
clicking, you know, mm. but it sounded good. And then that's when I started exploring using the space underneath the studio. So that's now the tracking room is the space underneath, which is previously, when I moved in there, I didn't even deal with the space underneath the studio. It was just this big open warehousey part that was like completely filled with debris, like oh. totally trashed. I just had it, but, and so then I clean. so I didn't use that right away. Also, initially I was doing avant-garde music and hip hop, so it was all very like, it wasn't about big, huge sounds. It was more of like like weird sounds, you know? Mm-hmm. And then finally when the, the sh- thing started shifting in sound, basically when the, not the uh, calendar 80s, but when the sound of the 80s started happening and people wanted like bigger sounds, more processed and stuff like that, and I started thinking that way, too. That's when I looked at the space underneath the studio and opened that up, cleaned out the debris, stopped using what's now my bedroom, and moved the stuff down there. So it was like – so, yes, that's that's what we got. Yeah. Do you think that that's the selling point of the studio? Like, I hate to use the word selling point, but the strength of the studio, like the versatility and the the possibility. Like, it sounds as if – and first of all, I don't actually know if you have, like, a lot of – regular rooms like this is a vocal room and this is this like people think of a certain thing when they think of going to a studio and i get the idea that bc is not that yeah what's well, it's quite unorthodox on a lot of ways for instance when uh, when the bands are playing i don't actually see them actually i think that's why sometimes i i have a hard time remembering certain things, like how many people might be in a band or something like that. Because, you know, we talk, we mix and stuff, but when they're actually playing, I'm not seeing it. So that's not in my memory or my brain. So that, for instance, is unorthodox. I mean, we work around it, you know. I have to go downstairs to look at the band and back upstairs. So I do do a lot of up and down the stairs, Mm -hmm. thankfully for exercise, you know, when I have a band in. And there are a lot of different rooms and, and ways to do it. There's even more than I've even... Um, explored, you know, because when people surprised by that, well, why wouldn't you know all the th- opportunities to do the sound here or there? And it's like, well, on whose dime? You know, right. usually people, when they come in, they're like, what's going to work? What do you think will work? And I have to pretty much tell them what I think will really click so- sonically. And there's something to be said for just going with what works, you know? And so mm-hmm. I don't really, well, you know what? I was thinking we'd experiment for another, for three hours on your dime. <laughs> your that, money, that, right, yeah. yeah, that's not going to happen. So <laughs> I've actually made, I continue to make discoveries usually when something weird happens. Like, oh, we actually can't do it there where I thought because of blah, 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 something technical or who knows. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I have, to, I have to explore some other idea and I go, well, you know, I always did wonder what things would sound like over there or over here or some business like that yeah. or splitting things up a certain, a different kind of way because because of some unforeseen thing, and then I discover something new. So there's a lot of options with weird placements and sonic spaces, definitely. I read somewhere that somebody wrote BC Studios' best drum sound in New York. So what would you what would you say to that? And if you're assessing your drum sounds, your drum skills, why would you think that is? Um, well, I have a, sort of a very nuts and bolts. Um, approach to recording drums like for instance I, I use a lot of mics mm-hmm. so usually when I'm recording I'm, I'm not the question I ask isn't are we getting the perfect sound the question I ask is can we get what we need from this and with like some options because I, I think that those are too big of questions to be asking when you're actually tracking you want to make sure to get it up that you can um, get the people recording fast, get the takes, and be able to say and get everyone to agree, yes, we can work with this and we can get what we need. Mm-hmm. And once that question has been answered, we move and go and start recording. It's not set in stone until we mix. So there's a lot of 
ways to do things and, and get different kinds of sounds. So I think that the fact that I've left a lot of flexibility into stuff maybe does give a lot of quality. If you want ambience on drums, that's kind of the spot. So whoever said it's the best drum sound in New York probably is interested in, in ambience to some extent or another. I am kind of not the padded room drum sound of the 70s. Right, not the dead. Right. I, I mean, I can pull that off if need be, and I occasionally seems like the way to go actually here and there. I'm not sure I'm the best at that, so it's not really a specialty. Mm-hmm. Of course, since I, don't, I do it, since I do it seldomly, well, that's what's going to happen. So to some people, maybe it's not the best sounding drum, uh, drum room in the city. You know? Also, it's, it, it really depends because I have a very – I don't have a set idea of how loud drums should be in the mix. It really goes song by song, and um, sometimes, like you can't have everything in a song, and you particularly can't have everything in a mix, mm-hmm. in a recording. So you have to be like, what's important? Like I always ask myself, what's what's really essential about this band? That's usually what I'll make sure is highlighted. And often enough, with a lot of stuff I do, it's it's yes, sometimes the drumming is kind of the essential thing or one of the more essential things, but often enough, it's not. Like for instance, I don't have a, I don't feel I have a big drum reputation like Steve Albini might, where mm-hmm. like. All, everything he does, the drums are like pumping. Like, like I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe the drums are kind of boring on that band. And he's just accentuating that the drums are boring by making the drums so pumping. Maybe it's something else that's essential about the band, not the drums. Right. So why he always has this sort of like, like all, now I'm actually, am I actually complaining about Steve Albini? Wow. No, I shouldn't. <laughs> but, but all this stuff has a real focus, very drum centric. The weird thing is, I think what what I do, yes, and I, I don't love the fact that probably I do have a few different like focuses. Like I, oh, there's this one kind of thing that Martin does. There's this other thing, and and I'd like to think that it's more than like four or five things that I'm mm-hmm. good at or can bring bring in. But some of those focuses I have aren't really so drum centric. It might be more about like even guitars or like weird sounds or mm-hmm. effects or create you know other craziness. So what what would you say your focus is if somebody asked you what your forte was? Well, de- well, definitely. I think, and I've wondered where this comes from. Also, I I, I sat through a lot of um, classical music when I was a kid. Hmm. Um, growing up on the Upper East Side, uh, my mom was a classical pianist. She toured all over the world. Uh, she actually uh, played for um, Allied troops during World War II. She was Argentinian. Which is very significant then because Argentina was sort of fascist and sort of tacitly sided with Hitler. So um, it was significant that an Argentinian would um, – and she was very into that. She actually got press in the States as the uh, – as Argentina's goodwill ambassadress. Oh, wow. You know, basically saying here's an Argentinian that's actually supporting the Allied war effort. Mm. Um, so actually because of that focus – amongst my parents of classical music we had season tickets so i sat so during season i went um every week thursday night i went to the philharmonic and every other week i went to the opera Uh, i i was not into it i gotta say well i did hear you say i sat through (laughs) and then you stopped yourself saying i sat through so that was yeah and my and i of course did not appreciate anything i mean my mom would play piano like every night shortly before I went to sleep and while I was sort of supposed to be sleeping. So she would play for like two hours maybe, classical music of the, uh, I guess, romantic kind of era, Chopin, that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. Liszt. And uh, I think that might have seeped into my brain where I got used to like processing like orchestral kinds of sounds. That's usually what I try 
to I, I guess maybe what I like is sort of density. Something's feeling a little more orchestrated. That's why I tend to like. I mean, I can do stuff that has less elements. And usually, what I realize if you have less elements to deal with in music, you have to make sure all the elements you do have have really bold sounds. Mm-hmm. So they have to really, you know. And then if you have a lot of a lot of sounds, it's more about how they interact with each other. So it's a little different. It was funny. I got comments back in the no wave days that that were sort of odd. Like some of the word elegant got got thrown around. I was like, elegant? That's, that's not very punk sounding. <laughs> but but people, would, I was like, really? I'm not trying to make anything sound so elegant. But that's what people would say. Like if I did Live Skull, I think. I think mm-hmm. one of the people said, oh, it's it's kind of elegant. And I think that they were sort of, it was sort of a neutral comment. Some of those comments were kind of neutral. Like no one was saying that it was good or bad. They were just, that's kind of how it is. And wondering why, maybe why it was. Because what was happening in recording during the No Wave era was more of like, Wharton Tears, the other record, the uh, the only the other the other guy the other guy, yeah, <laughs> like he was but would trash things out a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Actually, it's funny because when people say, "Oh, I had the sound of that era," occasionally someone says that. I feel like I need to correct them and say, "Actually, that might be more Wharton who had the sound of that era." You know, I did my own thing and that's fine, but it wasn't like what you think of of that time. So I would make give a certain elegance to things. So they said. Well, it's an observation, and it is always interesting, I think, to hear what somebody else has to say, like the person who said best, best drum sound in New York. You wonder what they were listening to, and, yeah. you know, that kind yeah, of Yeah, it must have been that one special thing, mm-hmm. you know. But, uh, yeah, the elegant thing I processed, and I, I, I took it. I was like, well, I guess. But it was funny how people, again, I think we said that earlier, how sometimes people do kind of listen. Mm-hmm. I'm, su- I'm surprised. I usually operate under the effect that, People don't listen and people don't really notice the, the, the minutia of a mix. That's my operating assumption. It's all big picture. The minutia affect pe- affects people and they're listening, but no one really cares about those things. That's what I tell even my clients. No one really cares that we get that little thing right. But actually, it's funny when people say stuff. That's like, wow, they really are processing this thing. Yeah. So it's funny. And so one person said, I said, the Reckmeister Harmonies person said, it sounds like a sewer. And then yes. this other person that was in Live Skull, elegant. like 25, said, it's, it's kind of it's kind of elegant. So elegant. I'm seeing elegant <laughs> sewer in like lights or like as the tagline. Line, the elegant sewer that is BC Studio. Yeah. So, well, you know, I guess that's all me. If you ask the sewer and elegant orchestral. Yes. You know, m- mutant. <laughs> the orchestral mutants. Shall we go into um, your next set of music? Yes. Tell us about Essie. Yeah. Actually, the next, if we do three in a row, mm-hmm. um, there's women in all of these. Interestingly, it's funny because for a minute there, like, a year ago, I suddenly noticed I'm doing all these blatantly industrial bands with, like, a, a woman either being not just singing but being prominent mm. in it. Essie is the drummer who used to be in Yvette, an amazing, like, noise industrial band. So mm-hmm. it's him. And then this woman, Jessica Ackerley, who um, was also for a while in this band called Gold Dime, who I love. So she's this phenomenal guitar player. So they're a duo. Essie's a duo. Um, Ritual Humor. That, so, oh, and that's a song called I, I. And uh, that'll be followed by Ritual Humor. I, I mean, I, I thought of them as industrial, and that informed everything I did in the studio with them. But then I kind of realized, oh, they're a little bit like garagey, So it's a little different. Um, that's a song called Shroud. And there's a woman, Celeste, in it who's a singer and guitar player. Tidal Channel, by the way, is all the music in Tidal Channel. It's called Soft Glitter Cosmos Needs a Pig War. That's, that's on the BC 35, 35-year anniversary. Mm-hmm studio record and uh genevieve fernworthy who's in title channel she 
she's the instrumentalist in all that, and her husband Billy Cancel is this poet, and he's the person doing the the words and the quote singing. There's also a nice beep in there, which I'm very proud of. Excellent. I beeped Thank it out, you. the clean radio edit. So Martin that's three in a row. So we're going to hear Essie next. My very special guest is Martin B.C. And we have returned. My guest in the studio today is Martin B.C. Hello, Martin. 
Hi, Diane. <laughs> I love this mic. <laughs> it's the Velvet Voice mic. It's a special setting, actually. Yeah, quite liking it, actually. <laughs> so, um, we just heard uh, three songs. Let's see. We heard Essie with I, I. Ritual Humor with Shroud. Title Channel with Soft Glitter Cosmos Needs a Pig War. That's right. It does. <laughs> every kind of cosmos needs a, needs a pig war every so often. And um, is there anything else that you need to say about any, those three songs? Um, no. I think I, I pretty much said everything. I have a question from a listener. A listener wants to know what you remember about Rat at Rat R. Oh, yeah. Well, they were a very um, important, uh, damn, I hate to put it this way, but sort of like a B-band. You know, they weren't the ba- mm. they were like a, a, a lot of people's favorites, b- favorite band, one of their favorite bands, but they didn't somehow get too known. You know, they didn't yes. fly on the high horse of Sonic Youth, and the Sonic Youth loved them and were influenced by them. Mm-hmm. They didn't even fly on the high horse of Live Skull, but they, you know, but a, a lot of us heard them. I guess they were a little more like trash rock more that than like art rock, but they were still kind of arty. I mean, they were on Glenn yeah. Branca's label. That's an example of, of Rad at Rad R when I record, by the way, you know, that's that's a sort of, what's it called, anagram or? What, what, I don't know what it stands an, for. Of, of art, art, art. Oh. Yeah, so they were they're poking fun at art. So they weren't, they How would, dare they, they? they would never say they were art rock. But um, anyway, one thing with them is I remember, it, it's a good example of how no one really knew what indie rock basically was even supposed to sound like so i remember like my my whole focus hearing that was oh i want this to sound like it's live and coming through like a mind-blowing amazing sound system Mm -hmm. that no one's ever heard before that was sort of my mental without even discussing it with anyone that's sort of in my mind that being on my mind it sort of shows that there weren't any reference points like like what could you do what what could you be your reference point what would be the stooges you know sure, sure. those th- things sound good but that was a different era that's not what i was trying to make things sound like you know so, so there was no real eff- reference a lot of like bands of, the, of that ilk they hadn't even really been into multi-track recording studios at that point so a lot of what you heard might, might be yeah. like two two mics in a in a at a in a sh- at a show, so there was no real template. There was no track record of what things should sound like. So it was kind of, which was great. It was a bit of a wild west or a blank slate. And that that band is an example of how I felt that. Like like now we'd be like, oh, this band should sound like that. Back then I was like, I want to make a sound like, and I had something in mind that no one's ever heard before. Mm-hmm. Like that would be what I was hoping to achieve, and it was possible because that was the world of recording and before. Who knows? More home studios, uh, prosumer recording, and more affordable recording, which has its benefits. But that was before all that. Way before all that. Yeah. I mean, that era sort of lasted a long time with a lot of different genres. Yeah, I mean the era. Then of course there was more recording of these kinds of bands with the night of the advent of the '90s and all the big money that was pumped into all the local scenes and stuff. So suddenly you had like weird bands on a major label and they could actually be in the studio for three months so then that that was a different world then at that point i wanted to ask you a little bit about the psychology of being a producer and an engineer like what were the things that you were surprised at once you started really working with people a lot like like oh they're really looking to me for this or just how much is on your shoulders it's like you're almost like a bartender or a priest in some ways like it's like you're saving people or you're really helping them and then you're 
and you're dealing with them as humans, even though there may be a bigger picture that they can or can't achieve. Yeah, well, you you have to be um, really diplomatic, you know, and some people have even pointed that out. I'm kind of diplomatic. Elegantly diplomatic yeah, in the I, sewer. I, I, yeah, I try to, I actually try to be sort of non-controversial with things. Like I even watch talking about politics or something. I mean, a lot of that's very pragmatic. We can't go on a long tangent talking about politics in the studio, even though inevitably there's, it's good to have some downtime and we talk about stuff so we all get to know what each other thinks, but, you know, trying to avoid all this. Just like at the dentist, when you go to the dentist and they're not supposed to talk politics <laughs> at the dentist office, right? I, n- I never knew that. Well, I, ta- I talk a lot of politics doesn't. with my dental hygienist, and she's always like, don't tell anyone that we talk about, like, politics, because <laughs> she could get fired, you know? Wow. So so I try, there's a little bit of that, you know, just yeah. got to, you know, but it makes sense. It's got to be, like, easy peasy, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I really, um, I, I don't, I've never had much of an anger problem, so that's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I'm good at sort of, getting over things fast you know let them seep down usually my my usual uh, revenge is simply well you know what i don't have to do this again you know and luckily when the project's over maybe if that was a toxic relationship or that person was kind of toxic well you know i don't have to record with them again i'll just soldier through this usually Mm -hmm. every band has a bit of a bad cop good cop so there'll be one almost like that's the formula right there'll be like one person that's really hard to deal with and then everyone else is exceptionally a sweetheart right right. so there's a lot of that that stuff happening um yeah you know it's sometimes you you talk about stuff about big picture Mm -hmm. and sometimes i really go there sometimes it just falls in and we all speak this other kind of language um without having to articulate it and i'm impressed sometimes when i've actually like played music with people like improvised, you know, because I've, I've been doing a little bit more improvisation, mm-hmm. you know, not jazz improvisation, actually more of like noisy kind of industrially based effects driven stuff. And I'll improvise with someone who I've recorded and I'm amazed at how much it's almost like we've played before. But that's but not because we've played before, but we've been in the studio kicking back aesthetics, kicking aesthetics back and forth. And we kind of know each other's language, even though we've actually never done it. Because I've noticed that. And I was like, oh, wow, it's like first mm-hmm. time I played with this person, but just from force of being in the recording studio and hashing out mixes blah 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 actually we do have sort of a musical relationship oh that's interesting where do you find that you pressure yourself the most in the in the studio in the recording or producing process well one thing is i also got to make sure that it's copacetic you know and um Everything, every recording has its strong suit and its thing that's not its strong suit, you know? So Hmm. uh, it has this, but it's a little muddy or it's like that, but it's a little like that or, you know, so everything kind of like you can't have everything a little bit. So I try to make sure to have the right chemistry of things, Mm -hmm. you know? So I I try with mixing. I have a lot of ways to just make sure that we don't go down some rabbit hole of doing too many mixes that are in the wrong direction or have some like issue that actually isn't okay with people so just the technical stuff like and and actually it's funny because the the danger with me and i try to watch it like that we're we're flirting with this edge of like murk or mud or like or too much blending or all this kind of stuff or too distorted Mm -hmm. you know like that's all cool we want to go there but there's a line we don't want to cross so i'm always kind of agonizing over that Everything with me is pretty easy. I mean, I, because I found ways to make this happen, to also make sure I really talk with people outside the studio before they even come in to record. So I'm right. always, I, I, I don't like working with out-of-town bands, right? Because, well, where's all the little, like, late night, the well, little bar, t- bar, bar time kind of stuff after the show, where all that stuff that's necessary, where does that happen if 
they're not even the first time I actually lay eyes on them is when they walk through the door. So I always try to make sure I kind of know people. So mm-hmm. there's like a little unconscious kind of stuff. And stuff is communicated. That's one thing is I find I can communicate. I've wondered, actually, do I communicate stuff with like little bits of extra enthusiasm, a little bit of, ex- you know, it's like Pavlovian, like like a pet that's going to like do the thing because the the person observing them is going to be a little more excited about them like chasing after the bone or not chasing after the bone or, mm-hmm. or just stuff like that. Right? When do I influence stuff when I like actually behave a little differently when they're doing something that really excites me or am I am I showing my bias that might actually lead things certain ways? Because I've actually noticed that. Like I'll, I'll have a band come in and I'm thinking, oh, they're okay. I think, I think, I think. I think maybe we can get something good here, but I like taking chances too because you never know. And sometimes people exceed expectations, or people go like, "Wow, they came to the studio. Wow, they really got a whole bunch edgier." And I don't think it's me really; it might be like them. So maybe, you know, we we kind of know a little bit of what my aesthetic is, and I think maybe sometimes people just shift a little bit, or just the environment being with me and talking or knowing what I like or my the way I behave, respond to stuff they do. Maybe that all is part of the soup. Well, and you have. It's your environment. Like, you're the person. It's like your party. Like, you're welcoming them or not. Like, coming in. Like, okay, here we go. Here's This is what we have. And and I think that it has a lot to do with you. I mean, I think that you probably are somebody who can get the best out of people based on the things that you just said. That you can communicate well and that you're even keeled. And nobody's like, oh, Martin's over there shouting to himself in the corner right now. Like... Uh, you don't create like a fearful atmosphere, but like, what about, there was a period of time, I, w- I would probably guess it was the eighties when it was just like, every record was intense. Like a, like a just, it was like people's life's work. Like, oh, we have to get this. Yeah. You, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, that absolutely. Kind of like, absolutely. That's. Did you fall into that? Cause you seem very even and very relaxed in a lot of ways. So do you take on that? If somebody is that way in the studio or you're just you can kind of play counter to that. Well, I'm also tolerant of some things that I've learned seem to come with the territory, you know. So Mm -hmm. I have noticed I was funny. I was talking talking with a friend about Buddhist detachment. I find interesting. I'm a little skeptical. Mm -hmm. How detached do we really want to be? And I've noticed that. In art and music, the, the, the people, the stuff that's come into the studio where it seems to have actually had the most impact on other people. In other words, kind of the, the art that's been the most effective is usually someone that's pretty obsessive, mm-hmm. right, at, right at the heart of it. Obsessive, um, can't let go, really like very, very driven, complicated. And that seems to be kind of important. I feel in some ways with me, I, I try to, just for my own, because I also make music and blah, blah, blah. I, yes. I try to almost fake it a little bit. I got to do it like I'm really got, I, I try to remember, I try to act actually like I got something to prove, even though I feel like at this point, maybe I don't, I can't be bothered to necessarily worry about if I'm proving anything to anyone, not to sound too privileged or anything, but well, you know, it comes with age with everyone, but, yeah. but I'm still trying to have almost fake it, fake if I need it, that sort of youthful like determination, like everything is hinging on this because that seems to be a, a good component. But I do think something happened, something happened in the early 80s where it was the intention was a lot more intense and people really did it with a, a much more intense 
intense intention mm-hmm. than they do now. I'm, I'm amazed when I hear people complaining about how hard it is to update a website or something like that. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> we used to like go out flyering till two in the morning, risk yes. arrest, yes. come back here, do a record in the snow, show up the next day in the snow, load in, record, then go to the dance party and hand out like after that, like and hand out like little, little posters, bills, yeah. you know, and that was like, that's a basically like a 20 hour day or something and, and you can't update a website. So yeah. people are, also, I think it's just a weird era. We're right now in a very, um, like self-care, right? That seems to kind of come in waves. Like I didn't come up in an era that that, that had a lot of like self-care happening. You know, mm-hmm. it wasn't the 60s. The 60s were a lot about self-care. And I'm sort of Generation X, and the no generation that was sort of like, I mean, I, I tried to take care of myself actually, but, but there was not that much focus on it. Right. You know, I wasn't trying to eat perfectly well. I wasn't thinking I always needed therapy. I got my therapy from like, the meanness of some of the music even or something like mm. I try to channel that so I know that that's therapeutic in a way but it so I'm just saying right now this whole era is a bit more it's very me whatever and so as long as you're you're happy in your own little personal cosmos that's okay everyone else in my coming up was a little more desperate and I think it was maybe also the time it yeah. really seemed like stuff was melting down around us and everyone was, I think it was a depressing time, which actually made for better art, just like now is a depressing time. Mm-hmm. And that actually, like, I'm actually feeling a little more alive creatively, like, wow, this, I, if I searched for meaning, this is one era, as did back then. As a few eras have meant, this is a good era for meaning and mm-hmm. believing in what you're doing. I think maybe things are coming around, but for a minute, I, actually, I was starting to think for a second that bands were... I love it when a band mysteriously seems to have a lot of drive because some of them seem to not be able to focus on why they would have drive. Like yeah. what? They're gonna, are they going to be stars? That's not going to happen. They're going to make money? That's not going to, you know, it's like, right. it's, it's easy to be cynical and I appreciate those that somehow just do it like they mean it still. Just because they have it in them. Somehow, it, maybe it's really the few. I've wondered, is it just because it's not everyone? Mm-hmm. It seems like it's an important component for almost any successful operation like band. Not everyone. Some people can be a little off. But someone's got to. Someone in the band's got to yeah. be like the nut job who won't stop. Yeah. And maybe it can only be one or two, or, or else you can't really have a band. Maybe. Right, and the other the other ones <laughs> it's are a like delicate okay. balance. Yes, yes, and you make your own music. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that and what what drives you there. And I don't want to ask you if you like to produce more or play more, but I want you to compare the two for. For the audience in a way that that makes sense as to like what you do for a living and then well, your expression well i'm not very prolific in terms of my own songwriting and my own output so i think that it actually means more to me frankly than the recording than being a producer engineer i think i wouldn't be me without the learning experience that it's been of like working with other musicians and bands and being in the moment a little bit and you know, and I've, I've always thought it was important to be in the moment. I think that's part of the, the conversation. So I, I like going to shows, not just seeing bands that I think are good, but also seeing what people are even trying to do. Yeah. That that's also important, mm-hmm. important even if they're not doing it so well. Um, so uh, I'm just not that prolific. So the, the last record, I think, was like five years ago, and I'm almost done with the next record. The last record was Ex Nihilo. The next one's going to be called The Solstice. One one side is going to be completely contiguous, and that's the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. The other side's the summer solstice, which I don't know. I might split up the songs a little, but it's sort of contiguous e, and it's got like just it's much more it's more extroverted. It's got a song about Freddie Gray, the Baltimore pers- victim of police violence. Mm. It's got a song that's kind of I think it's called. Um, it's basically about anarchism. I have a lot of anarchy 
lyrics in it. Waves on My Mind might be the title. So it's a little more of like the summer of discontent, revolution kind of thing. And the other one's more of like introverted, the winter solstice. That's the next record. Yeah, I'm very contiguous All my sets, for instance, I, they're never, we never take a break. We never stop. Basically, we, we play until we have to stop. <laughs> until, oh. until society says that's actually the end of the set. And so oh. then, then we stop. So until then, we don't stop. You know, nice. I watch the clock, but so I'm into that, like no breaks. That's part of the thing, full immersion, very immersive now mm-hmm. is the whole idea. Um, and, and I don't really believe in a very controlled live set. So hopefully. And what do you play? I play guitar through a lot of weird effects and then also do a lot of vocal effects. So sometimes the vocal is straight, sometimes I live process and create like odd effects and weird echoes and weird vocal loops that go through the music and stuff like that, all spontaneously. Nice. So it's crazy. <laughs> and out of control. That sounds exactly like you and what you would. Right. I mean, it's not a surprise. When did you start creating your own music? Like timeline wise. Well, it's funny because I started basically drumming. Really, what I realized right away when I was drumming, literally, when I was like 18 and 19 and meeting all these people in the East Village and stuff, is the stuff that I would do naturally on a drum kit was not what anyone would want in their band and also was not drumming or, or things that I would even want for them to have. Like, I, it was not, it, it just didn't blend with even this type of music I was interested in. I, what I played was very funky, personally, mm-hmm. very like polyrhythmic. Um, weird time signatures, and there was just no place for that back then. You know, it's not like I would want Sonic Youth to sound that way or Glenn Branca to sound that way. It it just didn't fit. So I just was happy on my own doing stuff. It might have informed some weird hip hop stuff that I did at the time because I would still do my own stuff, very rhythm oriented, mm-hmm. um, and um, and with effects and loops and little weird things like that. And that's actually almost almost spoke more to the hip-hop stuff and the experimental stuff and it wasn't literally until i hit 30 that i even picked up a guitar so i'd already like i was already past sonic youth but i'm like you know what i wonder if maybe i should see what i can do with a guitar like it literally hadn't even crossed my mind oddly and then i wasn't even sure i would care to keep going that way and actually i went that way and so now i've been playing guitar exclusively and not really touching the drums so who do you love as a guitar player? Like, who comes to your mind first? Not necessarily, like, the star or whatever. <laughs> well, of course, but... the star comes to mind, of course, was Jimi Hendrix, as soon mm-hmm. as you said. But that's that's uh-huh. that was my hero, you know, at the time. I mean, that was the time. Um, I love Eugene Chadbourne. He's yeah, the one that changed everything for me, Whoa. you know? he Because the first thing I saw of a John Zorn game piece, long story, which I won't get into, but I actually walked into a John Zorn rehearsal. Um, when literally I was still in high school, so it was like 1978, um, and I just walked in, and I'd no, I'd never even heard music like that. And Eugene Chadbourne was the guitar player. I think he was playing with a balloon, and over the pickups, <laughs> nice. and I was like, I love this, and that was Eugene Chadbourne. So wow. he's a, a guitar hero that I owe everything to. If we're gonna get your playlist, then we probably do need to get to some music. Cool as. as as captivating as we both are right now. Yeah, <laughs> you, 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 both, both of us, we're, we're yes, rocking it. Yeah. We're, on, we're on a roll. Yeah, why don't I just introduce the next four? And if we break, we break. Does that make sense? Sure. All right. Yes, perfect. Laura Ortman, first thing is Mountains Rock. Mm-hmm. She's so cool because I think her stuff, um, it's, it's an interesting intersection of like a Native American sensibility. I think it's kind of important to her. Like something about it seems to touch on her Apache homeland, 
but yet it's kind of urban and she likes urban sounds, like definitely very urban sounds. And I don't mean like hip hop urban, I mean like like industrially weird, electric. She plays everything's electric and processed. So that's oh. Laura, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then after that is Phantom Family Halo, um, very trippy stuff. Reborn Animal Rides, so it's like animals that have like returned and and you can go like ride them at like the amusement park, something weird like that. Uh-huh. That's Phantom Family Halo, this guy called Dom Cipolla, who by the way also plays drums with me sometimes. Then after that is Art Grey Noise Quintet, which is uh, the, previ- the, the new band of Stu Spasm, who oh. was in Lubricated Goat. Yes. And this is a crazy band, a lot of, uh, also the drummer is Rich Hutchins, who also used to play in Live Skull. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is Won't Say It To My Face. Oh, and then next, the closer would be Natural Velvet, a very cool band from Baltimore. Um, it's funny the, the the band that I've been wor- I've worked with in the last two years with the most diversity. It's very hmm. LGBT. There's a, a person of color in it. Sorry, I guess it's crazy. A little bit Lily White over on my end of Brooklyn. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it was nice that there was a person of color. Got more LGBT. Two women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two women in the band. Bravo. <laughs> Brava. Yes, yeah, so then that's so that'll close it. And these are all uh, songs that you recorded. Everything for- I, re- I everything I recorded. Yeah, Natural Velvet. That it's a great song. I didn't mix the song, so I feel a little disconnected from it. But I did record it, mm-hmm. and I like how I do feel a little bit of my like dirty fingerprints on it. Somehow I can tell. Nice. You can tell. Nice. So it's cool. So my guest is Martin BC, and we're going to get back to his playlist.
Martin Bisi. Here in the studio with me, that was Natural Velvet with Gazed Upon, preceded by Art Grey Noise Quintet with Won't Say It to My Face, Phantom Family Halo with Reborn Animal Rides, and Laura Ortman's Mountains Rock. Anything else you want to say about those four, that playlist? Uh, Well, the Natural Velvet, that record is out, called Mirror to Make You. Laura Ortman is out, too. That's um, my sole remainder. That's kind of hard to find, but she's got a band camp. She plays around town, like, kind of a lot. She plays every couple of weeks in various ensembles, and, you know, she's a bit of a darling of the experimental scene, noise scene in New York. So she's out there a lot. Actually, the Phantom Family Halo... The drummer, Dom Sapola, he's actually in this band called Torres. That's out there a lot. And so he's, he's like a touring member of that band. And she's, he's sort of an me- extended member of my band, too, when he's around. And so I played with him a bunch. Yeah, I guess that's not much more to say about that. Yeah, our, uh, Art Grey Noise Quintet. Yeah, that's uh, a bunch of people from different bands. Rich Hutchins from Live Skull and Skelton Boy, who uh, if you've seen him, you probably would remember. He was in a band called Woman. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, known around town for only have, having two strings on his bass. Oh. Yeah, I can respect that. I can respect economy. <laughs> Focus, <laughs> focusing on what's important. How often do you usually play out? Um, I, I try to have a show every two months. That's the chemistry I think is kind of right. I, as with everything, I try to put everything into a show. So I try to, um, in every way, uh, rehearsing, uh, the lineup, the right bands organized. So when I organize a show, or even when I accept a show, or maybe sometimes don't accept a show, I just make sure I can put everything into it. Mm-hmm. So to have too many shows is not really will lend itself to that. So I want just to highlight the event as much as possible, get the best turnout, because ultimately I need people to be there bopping their heads, you know. And um, so yeah, once every two months, that's kind of it. I, I do different kinds of things. I, I have I have basically three things. There's Martin B.C., the band, and actually, I actually play songs. It's often, it's almost, the Martin B.C. band always involves a certain amount of, like, noise improv. Mm-hmm. And, and as, I, as I said before, I don't like stopping. So it's actually maybe a small amount, relatively small amount of songs. Like at, like at Alphaville, we're just going to play three songs, but there's going to be intro and segues and outro and yada yada. So, but that's still the Martin B.C. band where we actually play some songs. Then there's a thing called Martin B.C. and Friends which is usually some notable rockers doing who don't normally do improv, actually like improving. So that's kind of what oh, that wow. is. And then there's occasionally something where I just put a name of a list of people, Martin B.C., blah, 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 this person, that person, where it's really a collective kind of more of an... And, there's, and that, the sort of thing where it's like a, an improv, collective thing, usually has no drums. Oh. So it's usually just noises and kind of drone. And that I do seldomly, but maybe twice a year, something like that. So I try to mix it up a little. It's part of just, I think, being a local musician to some extent, right. mixing things up. Do you ever do things at the studio, or is BC really, really just for a studio? Well, for a little while, I've been doing this sort of semi-private event uh, called Lunary, which is actually organized by my bandmate Genevieve Fernworthy. And uh, she plays, she, and when I mean by organized, it's just one set kind of of a drone nature mm. and a lot of people have played them at this point we try that we always do them around the full moon um uh, we often skip a month so it's either every month or every other month and it's kind of you know it's kind of a witchy thing um nice. and uh, it's one set 
and uh, it's like lights low and, you know, maybe like 15, 20 people come. 25 seems to be the max of what that room will even be comfortable with. Those have been amazing. It's also a great way for people who I'm kind of in communication with to come see the studio and hang out. And then they can, it's a bit of an open house. They can visit the control room and see stuff. But it's, you know, it's not really private, but it's not really public either. So I try mm-hmm. to screen it a little bit. But yeah, but that that's it. I, I, I can't actually veer into having like bona fide events there. Right, right. But it's a it's a little bit of a happening. And it's, then Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. And then tell us again about the BC35 record. Basically, we did this intense weekend. It would be it was mo- mostly daytime, right? So um, on both days, on, it was like uh, January 17th and 18th in 2016, something mm-hmm. like that. We started at noon each day. And each day had like a, just a series of like one-off things. Some of them were reunions, some of them were little jams, all a bunch of oddities, everything recorded. Out of it came 25 songs. Um, it took forever to put together because in some cases someone would play for, they'd play for half an hour. And some of this was like intense little lineups. There was a live skull reunion. There was also uh, an intense, great mashup between Al just kisses from um, Swans with like cop shoot cop members. Um, there was like Rich Hutchins from Live Skull playing for the first time with Phil Paleo of Swans and Cop Shoot Cop. Like so, that was like, incredibly meaningful, probably to them as players. Like they never, where else would they get to like actually two drums play together? So all that recorded, and it took months to sort through, edit, mix, embellish because it was recordings, recording sessions. It was a recording session, even though there was people there, like an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we overdubbed. That, so it was like the, the beginnings of a record. Jim Thurwell and Dana Schechter from Insect Dark, they, they actually wrote a piece and overdubbed in the studio in front of everyone. Actually, that was a funny one because they got the audience to like sing notes and hold notes as a choir. So we overdubbed like this impromptu choir of people going, ah, or oh, or whatever. Oh, cool. So that's all. So a lot of fun. Uh, what was my point about that? Yeah, so 25 songs came out took forever to finish mm-hmm. very painstaking finally found a f- home for it it's going to come out on an italian label bronson recordings we're already starting to plan like an intense record release show um it, it might actually have to be a series of shows it's already looking like that like maybe a a week be. a week yeah. uh, like one show a week for like a month and really try to cram a lot of things in. like white hills is also on this what we call bc 35 record so mm-hmm. they, they did a song wrote it just for the 35 year anniversary um, and so hopefully they would play. So it should be, so yeah, kind of big plans and then some touring. And I don't really like, in music you can't, you get plans to set in stone beyond the next year, you know? Yeah. Uh, you're just going to get disappointed. Well, we don't want you to be disappointed, but it I sounds like it's going to be an amazing <laughs> product. Is it going to be vinyl and CD? Yeah. What's the Yeah, actually output? what's actually pretty funny is that there might actually be a volume two. There's so much material. Oh, good. In fact, there's the 25 songs I said, but yes. there's also outtakes, which are perfectly great, actually. And, like, let's say I took, like, the thing that I mentioned, the Al just kids is playing with Cop Shoot Cop people. That, they played for, like, half an hour, and out of it came, like, six minutes. So oh, there's wow. a whole other 20 minutes. That's pretty Ooh. awesome. <laughs> so there's my, there's stuff like that. There's yet another Life Skull song that they thought was not quite as good, but they actually think they can spruce it up. So that might be on Volume 2. So Volume 2 at least digitally, will come out in a year. Oh, nice. A year and a half, definitely. So it'll be BC35 Volume 2 eventually. But at the moment, it's just the one vinyl with 11 songs with, like, an additional two songs and a CD and a 7-inch and a insert 
limited edition in some of the vinyls. Very so 13 exciting. Songs. Best way for people to find out about you and your meanderings and your studio? There is martinbc.com. Mm-hmm. Also, my uh, personal website, my personal page on Facebook is a little more happening. They, they, they kind of screw you on the band band websites yeah. Yeah. on the band pages so actually my personal one is more of like what I can actually use to spread the word and announce stuff but everything is ultimately on the martinbc.com as well mm-hmm. so can't go too wrong there and then the contact the so, contact tab oh the contact so you can, tab you can contact me yeah there's oh, something there that works yeah very good well thank you so much for coming and for making the time and everything that you've done I regardless of what you you know, talk about the studio. It's like people do really come for you, and it's and you are a timeline in yourself. Your your body of work is just magnificent, and I think that you have a gift for listening to others to really to make them great. And we're really lucky to have well, you. Well, you're right that that's that conversation there. You know, they teach me mm-hmm. for, to help them. Yeah, and well, it's and you do. You know, so there's the impact that you've made on the world through music is is phenomenal. So, well, well thank you, Diane. That's well, a great pleasure, of course. We're lucky to have you. So, well, I hope to stay thank in you. Brooklyn. Yes. <laughs> and come to Jersey City when I can. When the volumes come out of the BC35, we're going to have to have you do some something special with that. I think. Oh yeah. Okay. Thanks so much to Martin for visiting. Check him out at martinbc.com. And check the WFMU archive itself to hear full versions of the music that Martin played in his playlist today. And that concludes another podcast episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. More on the way. I am Diane Kamikaze. Check my Twitter and my Instagram. Handle is one word, Diane Kamikaze. Kamikaze ends with an E. On Facebook, you can find me as Diane Kamikaze. Farris, Rocker for Life and Making a Difference. The full link to my uh, index of shows and podcasts is can be found on wfmu.org slash playlists slash DK. Those are, that's a capital D and a capital K. I'm going to be working on encore presentations and I've got years of old interviews and podcasts. So if there's something that you'd like to see reposted that you missed, please get in touch. Send me email, diane at wfmu.org. And be sure to subscribe to the show. And if you like it, please rate it and review it. Wow. WFMU. Peer pressure. Thank you. See you next time.